Hey, this is Liberty DeVito, and you're listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Ever since the digital revolution, the joy of running out and buying a record feels like a long lost art. And with everything going on this year, even the excitement of going to a concert seems like a thing of the past. But this month, Billy Joel fans have gotten a little taste of the old days, thanks to Billy's longtime drummer, Liberty DeVito. Liberty's autobiography, entitled Life Billy and the Pursuit of Happiness, came out through Hudson Music on July 17, 2020. The pre-release announcements promised two things, a foreword written by Billy Joel, and Liberty's memories of literally every song they recorded together. The book delivers on both and more. We get the stories of an underage Liberty playing Long Island clubs and later touring with one of his heroes, Mitch Ryder. There's the early days with Billy, behind the scenes road stories and groundbreaking tours to Cuba and Russia. And as promised, notes on every song from Turnstiles through Stormfront. Liberty also discusses his family history, starting with his grandparents emigrating from Italy in 1891. The book touches on his family life, tensions and problems within the band, personal challenges, and his life and career after decades of packing stadiums and playing on top charting hit songs. Liberty's writing is honest and open. Passages are in turn funny, sentimental, and unmistakably genuine about his love of music and drumming. The book also includes the slightly tongue-in-cheek DeVito School for Music Business, notes from his drum clinics, and his thoughts on drumming and drums in general. The writing is just as clear-headed as it is tight and clever. Liberty's never sensational or self-pitying, but he gives you all the details you need to get the full story. And, just as the book opens with Billy's foreword, it ends on a note of positive change and reconciliation between them. Thanks in large part to the online Billy Joel fan community, the book sold more than 2,000 pre-ordered copies, each signed by Liberty. It was the number one seller in both drums and percussion and rock band biographies on Amazon for weeks leading up to its release. Michael and I were among the dozens of fans who posted photos of ourselves holding our autographed copies when they came in the mail. And we were fortunate enough to squeeze in a phone call with Liberty to learn more about the book. We'll get to that conversation a little later in the episode. But for now, let's dive deep into life, Billy, and the pursuit of happiness. As we were putting this together, I thought to myself, I don't even know who we're doing this episode for. It's July of 2020, and I think every single Billy Joel fan in the world knows about this book. We're giving the sneak peek to, like, the two people that don't know about it. Right. Or this is going to be, like, the archive that you go back to three years later, and you're like, that's right, I, I got to go find my book, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The response of this out of the gate has been incredible. I feel like fans and non-fans alike know about this book. I mean, it's pretty much everywhere in the music community right now. Liberty was in Rolling Stone on his own, on top of, like, the dozens of radio interviews and stuff he's been doing the past uh, week or two. As Billy Joel kind of gets this, critical uh, recasting over the past couple years. It's interesting to see how the Lords are getting to write their own history and, and literally in the, in the case of Liberty now. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the Lords of 52nd Street really helped him fall back in love with this material and the history that, yeah. that you know, went on in the good old days, so to speak. I feel mm -hmm. like he was really had a hard time obviously after the billy thing ended and also divorced himself for the, from the music for a number of years mm -hmm. 
And so I think to really get back to what he loved about it in the first place, hopefully, you know, it seems like it helped change his frame of mind a bit. Even just starting with the cover of the book, you know, there's a big reference to Billy Wright in the title, but Billy's not all over this. Billy is such a minor character and it really is Liberty's story from well before Billy through well after. He's so honest in it about times in his life when things were bad and times when there was conflict. And then towards the end, it just takes that positive turn. Chronologically, in the book, coincides with when it happened in his life. And you could feel the tone of the writing shift right there. Yeah. Really, really strong stuff. Really honest, genuine stuff. And having known him for years and hearing a lot of interviews Liberty has done over the years, he's a very engaging Mm -hmm. storyteller. I already knew that about him. You could just sit and listen to him tell stories for hours. And anytime he talks about the music, I'm just here with bated breath. So I already knew that about him. And I, you know, I knew he was a songwriter in his own right. And so I wasn't surprised that he had something like this in him. Mm -hmm. The stories on the page are very captivating, much like a conversation with him. That's no easy feat. I've known people that tell a great story in person, but when they write like they talk, they just sound really jerky. They sound a little full of themselves. It's just not funny. The talents that Liberty has in terms of rhythm on the drums, he definitely has in terms of rhythm when he's writing, too. That really came across as a nice clip to it all. It's very plain spoken, yep. but it's not caveman-like either. It really just sounds like somebody telling you the story. I'm sure he worked with the editors, just kind of connecting the dots a bit and all of that, but it feels like Liberty. And like you said, that's no easy feat. It translated very well to the written page, and it's a decent-sized book. I know we've been prepping for this episode, but it's a very easy read, and I felt like I got mm-hmm. through the majority of it pretty quickly. I'll tell you what, the one thing that screwed me up, though, when I ordered the book, I thought the entire book was just going to be him talking about all the songs he recorded on, which in and of itself was going to be great. Yeah. Uh, and then I get the book, and it's like, that's a tiny part of it. I mean, Liberty was born in 1950. This story starts in 1891 with his grandparents, and that's it's great. Yeah. But you know, so I get the book and I and I open it and I see the autograph. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Yep. And then I realize like, and how far, you know, in advance he begins the story. I'm like, oh man, I gotta wait how long to get to the meat of this thing? Um, but that that disappointment lasted about 30 seconds because the story was so engaging. Yeah. Um, just full of information. And, you know, I mean, being Italian and being from Brooklyn myself, granted, um, one generation after him, so much of what he said I had heard hints of, you know, that had made it sure. to, to my generation, you know. So it was yeah. interesting to hear those things as well. Yeah, I was very surprised with that as well. I thought it would start with him as a young kid picking up the drums. I thought the story would start with his musical story, so to speak. I was blown away with the wealth of information he was able to put down on his family history. Things prior to his generation were not traditionally not well documented. So I can only Mm -hmm. imagine that there were so many stories with his family that, you know, he and other family members made a conscious effort to document over the years because there is so much information there. And and you know what I kind of keyed into a little, there's a lot about how unconventional his family was even becoming in his parents' generation, Mm -hmm. which is notable when you get to him growing up and you see what a rebel he was, but there's this nod to, I didn't come out of nowhere. (laughs) As straight-laced as his father was by the time he met him, you know, there's hints of his father not being that conventional in his younger days. Sure. It's nice to see that sort of play out. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the first hint that you're going to get some you know, really intimate and vulnerable information was when he was talking about his dad. 
over the past year or two, maybe even more, reading Liberty on Facebook, he's got a head for social justice. You know, he doesn't have much patience for, you know, in particular things like police brutality. And, you know, he's not beating anybody over the head with his opinions, but he's very much like there are things that some cops are doing that are wrong yep. and they have to stop and there's no two ways about it. Yeah. And then you find out his dad was a cop. He lets you know that they did not always get along. But at the same time, you know, he shows that sort of understanding of what his dad went through. Whether he agrees with or supports everything that he did, you know, he understood the stress of being an officer brought to his mm-hmm. life and therefore brought to the home life. So there's that yeah. um, strain of empathy going throughout it where right. there were some things that were terrible, you know, in his home life and things like that. But he really worked to understand what his dad was going through. That's a very delicate balance to strike, especially these days. And he he plays it right down the middle really, really nicely. Mm. And so, I had actually met Liberty's parents years ago. Very nice folks. I met them a, a time or two when I lived in Florida and, mm-hmm. you know, knew just a little bit about them, just in what I learned over a couple conversations, but nothing to this degree. And gosh, it was really fascinating just to read about, you know, all the family members prior to him that shaped who he became. Speaking of his parents, I get one of my favorite stories, <laughs> and especially coming off our episode on Doug. Yeah. This the one where Liberty's father and, and Liberty's brother are arguing and they're like just going at it, flipping the table over and stuff. Doug was over for dinner. He just had his head down and he just kept eating like sauce is hitting him in the face. Yep. <laughs> just keeps eating. <laughs> just the story itself. But even just as I'm retelling it and laughing, the reason I'm laughing is because he told it so well. Right. He got in and out of that anecdote so perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly, you know, Liberty has always been super animated. And Doug was always the reserve guy who (laughs) appeared to not want the confrontation. So that juxtaposition of Doug just keeping his head down to it, (laughs) you know, focusing on the meal, (laughs) focusing on the task at hand, so to speak, and letting the chaos go on around him. I mean, that's like something out of Mean Streets, man. What about you? What were some of your favorite parts of this? I've picked his brain over some of the Billy songs over the years, and it was really interesting to hear him go chronologically through the entire catalog. And just kind of get an idea of what some of his frame of mind was around these albums and what went on in the studio. And, you know, I had known some of the musical things that had gone on, but to hear the early deals that were in place were double scale or two and a half times or kind of how they were compensated as a band and what the structure was and kind of the business side of it. Um, as they mm-hmm. were doing those early records was fascinating to me as well. There was a good job, too, of, of giving you that inside scoop, neither bragging about how much money he made nor complaining when it wasn't enough. Right. I mean, we all know there were money problems and, you know, if your career is your career. You got to get compensated. But I think he did a good job of, of just letting people know, like, hey, you know, this is this is how it was. And because it wasn't passing a lot that he would say these things, he wasn't devoting all his attention. He was telling you for reference so you could understand the next part of the story. Yeah, there were more reference points than dwelling on, oh, I lost my points on this record or the bonus on this got cut. It was more yeah. of a reference for frame of mind during that period of time as opposed to being the focal point. And I think that was important. I feel like we're getting to the point where people, I guess our age, especially younger, are just did not impress with, with sex, drugs, and rock and roll anymore. It seems like an okay boomer kind of thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, reading this, it was a, there was a real bad chance that this would just be troglodytic, that this would just be like way too old fashioned. Like, dude, we read the Zeppelin biographies in the 90s. It was cool then. It's 30 years later. Right. You know, nobody cares about your records. Nobody cares about your groupies, blah, right. blah, blah. 
But he told you like he's uh, your buddy at a barbecue. You right. Know? I mean, I keep going back to it, but it was I couldn't believe how well it read in that sense that it just told you these things and they were funny. Yeah. And they weren't show offy or anything like that. And it, yeah, great example was too the money. You know, he still felt like a guy in your neighborhood. He didn't feel like he was coming from Mars with these. Oh, and I made this much on that record and that. He was still a guy money. taking a train into the city to go to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? That's yeah. a great way to put it. But instead yeah. of the office, he was going into the studio and cutting a record. <laughs> and well, Doug was the same way too, as we found out. That's kind of cool. You know, it, it gives you an idea of why, in some degree, why the music came out like it did. Because they were working stiffs about it. And, it you cool. know, like we had mentioned in the Doug episode, they all came up together. So it wasn't like they were stepping into a situation where Billy was already a megastar. Granted, he had, right. a, you know, some success with Captain Jack and Piano Man and The Entertainer, mm-hmm. but nowhere on the level that would follow. So they were still on a similar level professionally and music wise, obviously, as well. It felt like a cohesive unit from the get go. Yeah, that always came through. Mm-hmm. It's nice to get like even a little more of that of that. This this a lot of stuff in this because Billy is such a minor character mm-hmm. that if you're familiar with Billy's story and maybe you've read a biography or two about him, this just fills in a couple blanks here and there. Yeah, that's true. And I think it was really smart to make Billy less of a focus. Clearly, Liberty's perspective and his story is plenty interesting enough. Now, granted, Billy is going to be a player in the story because yeah. obviously he was such a big part of his life for so long. So that goes without saying. But where he sat in the story, I think, was really well played. I think the best example of that, not to give away too much in the book, but the story of Billy and John Small sneaking into the Hendrix concert is, you know, pretty well cemented in Billy lore. Yeah. Well, Liberty was at the same show. So in this book... Billy makes a cameo where he, they, they run into each other at the concert yep. in this unusual circumstance. But it was so funny to get the story from another point of view where like Billy just shows up in the story. Billy isn't the story. Right. <laughs> kind of reminds me of yeah. Back to the Future, how they used the dance scene from the first one, yeah. <laughs> but they played a different angle of it that was part of a totally different story in the second one. You're seeing the same event, but from a totally different angle. And up through, especially up through uh, the section on Supa's Jamboree, which is uh, one of the bands Liberty played with uh, before Billy. Yep. I think it was that chapter between that and Mitch Ryder. Uh, he does a great job of giving you his unadulterated love of music. I would venture to say that it seems like he's kept that childlike love of music. But yeah. if he hasn't, he did a great job of channeling back to that. He sounds like a child, but he doesn't sound childish when he writes it. He just sounds so excited and so youthful yeah. in those early chapters. You know, he really taps back into what it was like when he was a kid. Because later on, when he's an adult, he sounds like an adult. When he's going through rough times, he sounds like he's going through rough times. When he's 18 years old and can't believe he's, you know, in the presence of his idols and he's meeting them backstage, it sounds like he's 18 years old and can't believe it. Yeah, and I think he took that youthfulness with him throughout his musical career. I don't think he ever lost sight about what he loved about music. And that's, yeah. that's why he's continued to, to create, you know, even though a large part of, of his identity was known as Billy Joel's drummer, you know, mm-hmm. he's kept himself so busy with plenty of other musical projects in his life and career, constantly reminding himself of what he loves about it. You know, this book needs, as I think a lot of rock biographies, it needs like a, a companion CD or a companion playlist on Spotify. Like you, you heard some of the topper stuff, right? 
Yeah, I have. Yeah, I yeah, he, Russell he, played he, me a tape years ago, and it sounded great. I mean, this was, I, you know, yeah. and I'm wondering, you know, do you cut the part of delaying the stranger recording sessions by a day? Yeah. Wow, Ballsy man. move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ballsy move then, and a little bit of a ballsy move telling the story now, because that, I never heard that. That I got never heard buried. that story. I had known think, that Russell know the, had moved on temporarily to try and launch his own career. So I knew about that, but I didn't know that that's what caused him to get axed from the stranger sessions and that it actually delayed the session by a day. I mean, it fills in a little more about Howie Emerson and and David Brown, because that history gets a little muddled sometimes, too. Mm -hmm. Puts puts them a little more into perspective, I think. It's funny because he he talks about Russell's, you know, like kind of black sense of humor, shows it with with some of the topper lyrics that he wrote. And it's like, yeah, you're reading these lyrics like I got to hear these songs. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they're not out there. They're not on YouTube, nothing. No, they're not. They're not anywhere, which is pretty wild to think about. But the stuff was good. And, yeah. you know, you could hear where some of these songs, like it sounds like a lot A lot of them sound like Billy Joel songs because right. of the band, you know. So you could hear yeah. the musical vibe that they brought to Billy's stuff by hearing the Topper stuff, which was fascinating. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I had no idea what transpired going into The Stranger. I, I had no idea that that's all what went down. Um, yeah. And it was cool hearing more about a little more about Howie and David because you don't hear too much about them at all. And, you know, the circumstances mm-hmm. with him getting hired for the tour and playing on Big Shot, you know, just so many little things where I had heard little bits of over the years, but it really connected a lot of the dots for me. Yeah, for sure. And how about that? The solo and Big Shot was one take. Yeah. Now, I meant to ask you about that. Because I almost texted you. I, I was <laughs> sitting in bed at like 1 a.m. like reading this. And I got to the big shop part and I took a picture and I had it all loaded a text to you because I couldn't remember if you had just guessed that it was David Brown or that you knew it was David Brown. But I think you guessed. I think you were like, I really think that's David Brown taking the solo. I feel like I had heard it through the grapevine. I don't know if it right. was like directly from... Liberty or something. I don't know. I feel uh-huh. like I had heard it, but never could confirm it one way or the other. But with that in mind, going through and listening to it, I was like, oh, it sounds like him all day long. But right. I never knew for sure. Like, never knew for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to text you. I'm like, oh, it's confirmed. And yeah. then I'm like, wait, did he know that for sure? Like, that's ah, late at night. <laughs> well, see, the funny thing was, you see, I got the book a couple of days before Michael. Yep. So I took it out, took a picture, and I texted it right to him. <laughs> yeah, and I sent him one back with the middle finger, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> um, yeah, the yeah. David Brown stuff, too. See, like, another thing that's not well-documented generally is the 52nd Street Tour. So I didn't realize that he was hired for the tour, and that was how he kind of got mm. into the fold. Stuff like that I didn't realize. Billy wasn't happy with how it was sounding at the end of the song, and David was around the studio and like, hey, why don't you try <laughs> something? And uh, yeah, proved himself right there. That's the kind of stuff you see in movies, you know? It was like how you get the gig. One it's like, shot. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it goes back to what, what Liberty says later. You you always got to be practicing every day because you don't know when you're going to get the call. You can't tell them, I, I need a day or two to warm up. No, you got to be ready. And that's the thing. These guys mm. were always, always ready whenever the call would come in. You know, Liberty and Doug and Russell did a lot of other sessions for Phil Ramone over the years. Mm hmm. You know, he knew and trusted the guys to where he could call them up and be like, hey, I want you to come down and play on this Karen Carpenter record or Phoebe Snow record or, you know, Liberty did a Mm -hmm. Paul McCartney session, you know. 
Yeah, when I it was funny because when I talked to him a couple of years ago, I got to when I got to interview him, so much of what he told me couldn't make it in, into the article just because I only had so much room and it was ostensibly to promote the Lord's playing nearby. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he told me about Paul McCartney. He told me a little about Cuba. All these things I just, I just didn't have a place for it, you know. Unfortunately, it's nice to see those all those stories get entered into the record here. You know, this book is chronological and. Mm-hmm. It really moves chronologically very well. I've I've read some books where they it jumps around pretty drastically, things like that. Yeah. Um. To me, with Liberty's story, uh, it really made sense to go this route, and I think it would have felt too jerky if it hadn't. He would do the song by song breakdown, then talk about the album, talk about the tour, but not in any formulaic way. You know, if nothing was interesting about that tour. He he would blow past that and he would talk about something else. You know, he he did those little uh, interludes in the chapters about drumming in general, like the history of drumming, just how he feels about it. That was a nice touch. Yeah. Separating them and making it a little more modular like that, spreading it throughout. Yeah, I like that. That kind of was like the, the little sidebars were nice. You know, Liberty's always been passionate about teaching and music education, you know, mm-hmm. between the drum clinics and his work in Little Kids Rock, the, yeah. di- the different camps that he's done over the years and the mm-hmm. sessions panel. And it makes perfect sense to him to want to incorporate some of that into this book because he really is passionate. You could tell about not just telling the story about the music in his life, but to really impart, you know, the music education upon someone who may light the spark for. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's in, and this story was around that his music teacher in my elementary school was like, put down the sticks, you're never going to be a drummer. Yeah. You know, and that stuck with him. And, you know, the way it's, it's nice that one of the, things he did with that was just make sure that he gave a little bit to everybody else that looked to him for drumming he would give them any information they wanted and thank goodness yeah. liberty didn't listen in that instance yeah right you know because you know <laughs> yeah. hate to think how many other people without this strong of a drive who were incredibly you know had a gift that just wasn't seen at the time who who just got discouraged right out of the gate especially by a teacher that's the worst changing subjects completely yeah did you happen to see the twisted sister documentary i did see that that actually makes a nice companion to the beginning of this book because it's all about the Long Island rock and cover scene. Yep. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, Lib was out of it by the time Twisted Sister was coming up. But yeah, that was its own ecosystem. And, uh, you know, I'm in Philly and Philly's a big cover band scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, especially, it's nothing like nothing like it was 10, 15 years ago, let alone what it was like on Long Island, <laughs> you know, back in the 60s and 70s. Right. Yeah. Where these guys would just, you know, they were playing six, seven nights, you know, how many nights a week. I, you know, I never really thought to draw those parallels, but again, it's like two similar stories from different sides of the tracks, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that picture of him in 1999 from the Tama Drum Ed, I remember seeing that in Modern Drummer. Like that picture took me back to high school. Steve Guy was in it. A couple of other guys were like always in those magazines, and there was just always one picture of Liberty DeVito. You yeah, know, like every couple months they would throw him in. With the I orange, remember seeing the that orange specific one. Star Classics. Yeah. The and the hat backwards. Sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have exactly. a print of that actually somewhere still. It's funny because he signed it. And this was back when I was doing his website years ago. And the caption, he says, was it to Mike? You are the webmaster. <laughs> Pretty funny. <laughs> That's great. Love this the chapter on his brother. That was that was touching. It was unexpected to hear all that. Yeah. It was it was really something that he devoted a whole chapter to. His brother kind of just stopped everything, paused, yeah. gave you the whole story. He didn't have to. He really didn't. 
he could have gotten around that very easily. Yeah. And he dove headfirst into it. Uh, you know, remind you what those things were like in the 80s. Yeah. Especially. That's true. Gosh, it was just yeah. heart-wrenching. You always hear the stories of like what Billy was going through when he did this album. You know, the bridge was a tough one. You know, he wasn't happy and Stormfront was the mm-hmm. Frank Weber stuff. And, yeah, you know, you always hear all these anecdotes about the good and the bad that Billy was going through personally around these records. Yeah. But the half dozen or more musicians that are also playing on these records are also going through their own stuff. Right. As this book clearly illustrates. Uh, And again, without being, uh, you know, self-pitying, but just lays it out, man. This is what life was like. And, you know, it's nothing sensational, you know, in that sense. These aren't rock star problems. These are everyday problems that he went through. You know, very relatable, very ordinary things, I guess you could say. And that's true because he just happens to have a different job than we have. Yeah. Because all these people have happened to heard the work and seen the work. There's a different attraction to it. But at the end of the day, this is about a human being with a passion for something and talks about the struggles of his life, the struggles of his job, the struggles with his boss. Mm -hmm. When you boil it down to that basic level, it's very relatable with his conversational style. It makes it even more so. Yeah, if he didn't write it this well, it would have been horrible. <laughs> right. What's really interesting is that this book was clearly started years ago. It's yeah. been in the works for a while. Mm-hmm. And this reconciliation with Billy is only within the last half a year or so. You know, I think right. You know, they met in February. So this has only been a couple months since they actually sat down with each other. Yeah. But you could see as this book was coming along that he was already starting to look towards that in a way it's almost as if part a lot of this book was just him working through it like one last time like getting it out and just saying it and and being done with it yeah from what we've put together they met up in february i had this impression when it was first announced i was like oh well that's what liberty did the last few months instead of uh go on tour but once you get to the end of the book you realize what a long process it's been that it's been going on for years i think it was a combination of the book and the lords that really made him realize what he missed musically and friend wise and i think it really really helped turn the corner for him when you put together the timeline in the book and then you go back and you put together the timeline of of when lords got back together you see where they overlap you see the coat where they coincide yeah and that was also right around the time hired gun came out as well yeah what year was hired gun i want to say 2016 or 2017 yeah this is 2016 i probably saw it on netflix significantly after that yeah and then it did like the you know the independent theater festival circuit prior to that kind of want to go back and rewatch this now because i think we had said too you know liberty never had a problem speaking his mind but i think it was russell you said in particular was always much more tacit and diplomatic about everything and would just not say anything but right live with the they would open right up about it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, obviously Hired Gun was an important film for him and Russell to tell their story. Mm. Now with the book and especially now with Liberty and Billy reconciling, it almost feels out of place. I wouldn't be surprised if he was over that by the time the movie actually came out. So many people were always, you know, will they ever play together again? Will they ever do this again? Will they ever this? And my whole thing was like, these guys were like best of friends for years. Yeah. If they play music together again, that'd be amazing. But I just hope they can be friends. No, I, I agree. I was just thinking, you know, there there are people in my uh, small travels as a musician that I have learned, like, 
we're we're good friends as long as we're not playing music together. You know, <laughs> like right. we were in bands. It went horribly. I didn't talk to them for a couple months and vice versa. And then, you know, we'd all hang out and everything would be fine. But in a professional atmosphere, it was no good. And, you know, I wonder if it's just that this is more of what it is now. It's like, we're friends. It's good. We had what we had. It's it's not, you know, it's not going to come back. I still say he's going to be the guest at the first Madison Square Garden show. You never know. That, that's, you he, never... that's happening. I know he'd be open to it for sure. And it's up to Billy, certainly. But I mean, I think, I don't think they're done. Nah, nah. Eh, I don't know. I don't want to say. I don't want to say. 9-11 plays a, a big part in this book, and I think we're far enough removed from that to realize that, like, culture sucked for, like, five years. For a while, yeah. With the exception of the wonderful Chappelle show, everything was just crapola yep. until, like, 2007, I feel like, until, like, we just finally, like, just shook it off just a little and, and started figuring something out, you know? Right. It was just like everything that was around before 9-11, they tried to like just hold on to. And it was like it was so done, you know, crappy TV sitcoms, crappy rock bands, legacy acts had no clue what they were doing for a minute there. Yeah. Everything. You mentioned the 9-11 thing. I was hanging with Liberty quite a bit during that period of time. And so I remember some of those stories because I was. Oh, yeah. Because I was there in Florida, you know, like I remember when he flew to New York to do the benefit thing and. Like, I remember like him when he came back telling me that story about being on the plane, you know, going up there. And I, I'm, I'm like reliving these things that I remember like the week it happened. I, and that was one of the surreal things for me is like the Winter Park era, the early 2000s mm-hmm. when, you know, he and I were hanging out uh, down there. But just remembering a lot of that. And it just brought back so many memories of our time together down there. Uh, I'm curious about this because they talk about this with Billy, too. You know, did you notice like a palpable shift in his demeanor after 9-11? Just like from an outside perspective, because I think it's something that affected a lot of people in different ways. So I'm curious if that was something you had picked up on in the time you knew him. I think Liberty has always had a very patriotic streak in him. He was always very proud. And I think that amplified considerably after 9-11, which it did with a lot of people. I just remember being in Florida when it happened and to have something so severe happen at your home, in your hometown. Yeah. It was just, and being far away and having family there that you can't get a hold of. Like, you know, the story about, you know, his sister on the phone with Mary, I'm, I remember that. And I, it was just, oh, wow. that whole time was so surreal, I remember. Yeah. And just didn't, didn't know what to make of everything. My mom and my Aunt Jackie work in Manhattan. Really? And they were there that day. And, and there, was, uh, there, was a, there was a good couple of hours until they, I think until after they walked across the Brooklyn Bridge that they were able to find a phone and, and call us and let us know. Wow. I mean, my mom was like, you know, watching. She saw, you know, she was like in her building and, and the World Trade Center was very much within eyesight, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And, and um, it, when when Lib goes into that, I remember that feeling, you know, you, and yep. you forget about it now because everybody has a cell phone. But yeah, you had to wait till somebody found a phone to call somebody. Oh, yeah. And be like, yeah, I remember it had to be a phone tree, you know. Right. Oh, yeah. The lines were so jammed. What what was yeah. even working? Unbelievable. That time frame. Yeah. And I remember, yeah, it was only like a week, 10 days at Liberty, went up to New York and if I remember correctly, nobody was told where the studio was that they were going. Nobody knew. They were keeping it mm-hmm. so secretive. That's when everyone yeah. was still afraid that there was going to be more. Yeah, nobody knew what was happening. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I was yeah, I was kind of wondering about that the way he was talking about them walking through ground zero and everything. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then you know, there's one or two again, you know, does a great job not sensationalist, but very vivid, very kind of gruesome details that he throws in that that just drives it home. You know right. what I mean? Yep. Um yeah. That was very surreal reading through the Florida era for me. Yeah. Knowing some of that and having been around during some of that and you know, some of it I had forgotten about. Some of it I remember being very much around for. And it was just very wild to relive some of that stuff. Because he and I, you know, during that time too, we spent a lot of time together. Because I remember the Funk Club was a very busy band for a while. And pretty much every show he did, I did. Helped him set up <laughs> the drums. Yeah. You know, move them from awesome. gig to gig. And, you know, I remember he used my drums once or twice. And I'll never forget, That's you know, cool. I, I was like, yeah, you can use them, but they don't sound that great. You know, they're just kind of lower end <laughs> Tamas. And yeah. he's like, oh, that's fine. And so he sets them up. I set them up and he's playing them. I'm like, okay, so it's not the drums because <laughs> you sound amazing right now. <laughs> I was just watching uh, the uh, video of him at Farm Aid. Somebody oh, yeah. sent it to me. And they were just like, he's going like batshit on these drums, but they're not his drums. And you see Randy Newman looking at him, look, what, what's going on back there? <laughs> it's such an like, awkward setup. Both too. hands up. Yeah. I love if you've looked more at, at that drum setup. It looked, I don't know whose it was, but the setup <laughs> was very strange. It was. Yeah. The, the second Tom was like a lot lower and almost reminds me of like what Kenny Aronoff used to do in the Mellencamp days. So, which would make it was sense. Yeah. Maybe it was I his, mean, yeah. Farm Aid was a, like a Mellencamp thing. When we get to that episode, we'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah. And another connection to the Florida days, the sax player for Farm Aid was Charlie Deschant from Hall & Oates. Uh-huh. Mark didn't do that gig. And Charlie and Liberty formed a band together in Florida. Oh, oh I saw he was on Farm Aid. Yeah. Yeah. They were all such like local dude musicians that just happened to be superstars. That That's really the charm of it. Yeah. Oh, then I met this guy on this gig and I was like, well, we'll, we'll form a band together. And we'll do this. You know, the, that entire band, the Funk Club were incredible players. Every single one of them were just so good. But Liberty and Charlie were the two touring guys. The other right. ones were mostly at that stage playing locally at the moment yeah and regionally so pretty much the funk club schedules revolved around holland oats and billy's tour so it was mm -hmm. like whenever both of them were home is they when shows out. would happen all right but enough of us talking and going on as if we were there and we wrote the book i think it's time we heard from the man himself absolutely so without further ado here's our conversation with liberty devito well, first, uh, we can't thank you enough, man. I'm, I, we appreciate you uh, taking some time to uh, chat with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it was cool, man. You know, uh, Andy told me that it was Michael, and I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. You know, <laughs> Michael knows more about me than, than, the, than actually the book knows. <laughs> <laughs> some of those things in the book, you know, Michael was there. Well, we were eating a, a, a steak and eggs at Denny's at like 4 o'clock in the morning. Oh, man, that was a late night. Having the waitress bring up six to eight glasses of wine, and I give Mike 20 bucks and say, please put my drums in the car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that, that was a rough night. I'm like, I just remember, I'm like, please don't puke in the car. Please don't puke in the car. Oh, gosh, that was horrible. That was after one of many Blackfin nights, if I remember correctly. Yep, yep, yep. Blackfin. Oh, my God. Blackfin. Is it still there? I don't even know. You know, it's funny. I, I, I actually looked it up not too long ago, and I think it's gone. Yeah. I have to ask Ricky. Ricky Sylvia. Oh, yeah. He'd know. Yeah. Yeah, he would. He would. <laughs> so what do you want to know? 
fortunately, we've had a little bit of time to both of us read the book. So we've we've really uh, gotten to dig into it, which has been great. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. What prompted you to get into writing it in the first place? What made you start jotting this stuff down? Well, I started it when uh, when I finally, um, when me and Billy had the, the falling out. And I thought, I'm going to start writing stuff down, you know, whether it was good or whether it was bad, you know. Yeah. I, I saw, mm-hmm. So I started writing things down, and then I thought, ah, nobody was going to want to hear this. And I put it away. And um, every now and then I would take it back out again and write a little more. And then uh, uh, some, I'd tell somebody a story. And uh, they would say, you should write a book. You know, you got some good stories. And it was like, yeah, I take it out. So that was like 16 years ago that wow. it started. Mm-hmm. So then when I uh, took it out and, and uh, sent a couple of things to a friend of mine, yeah. and he said, wow, you got something really good here. And uh, he said, you know, um, this, is, this is really good. And he kind of put the chapters in order. And then when I looked at it, I thought, you know what? I'm with age. You hopefully you you get a little bit wiser and you you get a little calmer. And yeah. I actually thought, let me let me retune this and try to see things from Billy's point of view and how he saw things, and uh, you know whether it be right or wrong. I just wanted to know how he saw it. Yeah. I, I kind of saw yeah. things from his position, and I saw the reason why I did certain things. So, you know, it, it came out the way it did because of that, that, that uh, extra looking into it, looking past my own ego and seeing why my ex-wife, you know, wanted a divorce because, you know, I was living in this bubble and, and my ego was huge and anything I did was right and everything she did was wrong, you know. <laughs> so It feels like you were finally able to, to step outside of it a bit and really look at it almost from an outside perspective. Yeah, well, the the, the first uh, stepping outside of it was being pushed outside of it, so there was a lot of anger there. Yeah. But then being mm-hmm. out of it for a while, uh, and then you realize, like, hey, you know, I, I'm back to the life that I knew before the bubble was created, and yeah. I kind of like it. And let me let me see why all the, everything happened around me while the, while the bubble was going on, you know. Sure. Do you remember? Do you remember uh, what were some of the first stories you started writing down? Like those first ones that prompted you to to kind of document things. Oh, uh, just uh, uh, angry ones. You know, things that, that <laughs> involved a lot of women and things that you know uh, involved uh, drug stuff and 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 just you know dumb things that were done on the road, whether it be with me or or mm. or uh, anybody in the organization. Uh, so yeah. that that was like, you know, drummers uh, and musicians, when they write their bios, they always write this garbage, you know, uh, mm-hmm. about, oh, I had sex with 9,000 girls. Yeah, okay, <laughs> so it's been done before. You know, that, that, that has been done. But also, there are so many things on YouTube about drum lessons, like, oh, watch this YouTube uh, video and you can learn how to play paradiddles faster than anybody else. You know, like, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah. Now, that's not how you make it. I didn't make it like that. No. You're, you're actually right. talking to, to a guy who never took drum lessons, but played with one of the biggest single artists ever, you know? And uh, yeah. so I wanted it to be like that. Like, I wanted people to read it and go, you know, there's two lines. There's the Liberty DeVito uh, drummer for Billy Joel, and then there's Liberty DeVito, the the guy that you know, like you met Michael, the one that yeah. you knew, you, you know that guy. Yeah. But the, those two uh, lives kind of crisscross sometimes, 
And, you know, this was the road. These are the roads that I traveled to get to where I got. And some of the roads were really dark, you know, but mm -hmm. I chose to take that road. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually happy that I was able to get out of that road because like Doug Stegmaier, he couldn't pull himself out of that road. Right. So, and that's, that's a common tale, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very common tale. Very common tale. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get out of it. And I wanted people to know that if you go down that road, you can get out, if, yeah. you know, if you want to. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, you know, reading through the book, I was so surprised with how much uh, family history there was. That was such an interesting read. Uh, you know, how was how was all of that documented over the years? Was it just stories, you know, talked about, you know, through your with your family or how did all that come together? Because there was just such a wealth of information there. Well, I was fortunate enough uh, that my parents, my father didn't pass away till he was 91 years old. Yeah. And my mother was 89 when she passed away. And I remember uh, my Aunt Millie, who was the, the younger one uh, than my father, um, she, she was alive too. So I was able to sit with a tape recorder with them and ask them questions and hear their stories, you know, uh, about, about the World War II, about living in Brooklyn, about, you know, uh, uh, my aunt would always say, oh, your father, he was so bad when he was a kid, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I still have those cassettes somewhere where, where I, I got them talking. And uh, it, it, was, it was really, really good to, to get that documented because I wanted to know about my family. I wanted to know where my grandmother came from. I wanted to know uh, when, wow. how they got here. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the fact that in the book where I learned uh, I was always told that my, my grandfather w was so depressed when he came to America because he left his girlfriend at home, uh, in Italy. I never uh -huh. saw her again. Well, then I looked uh -huh. up the ship, the manifest, and, and he was actually married. <laughs> and yeah. when, I told my, when I told my father and my aunt, they were like, there's no way he was married. That's a lie. The ship is lying. You know, it's not lying. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's great. I mean, so lucky that you, you, you know, had the foresight to do that because, I mean, those stories would have been lost. Yeah. Well, and in the same way, I was, uh, I, would, I would have lost the friendship of the 30 years and, and the beauty of making those records if I didn't uh, come forward and, and, and just ask Billy, hey, you want to have a meal together? You know, when I had first heard that, I had thought for years, I'm like, you know, yeah, I would love to to see the two of you play together again. And that, that would be amazing. But knowing what good friends you were at the core to me, I was like, I just hope they're friends again at some point. That was, so to hear that news was just amazing. Well, you know what happened? It was like, we got uh, myself, Russell Jobbers and, and, and Richard Canada, along with the late Doug Stegmaier, we got uh, inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. Now I was still angry at that point, And I said, I wasn't going to go. As a matter of fact, a guy from uh, the drum company that I was a good friend of mine, Joe Hibbs, mm -hmm. uh, he asked me, he said, are you sure you want to go back there? You know, knowing the way I felt mm -hmm. about it. Right. Uh, but but what, seeing Ricky and uh, Richie and talking to Russell, I decided, OK, I'll do it. As a matter of fact, I sent somebody else to do a sound check. I wasn't even going to go to that. So <laughs> um, I get there and, and we're supposed to do one song. And the crowd went so crazy after we played the one song that we ended up doing five tunes. So we uh, thought, hey, why don't we do this for good? You know, let's let's take this on the road. There's a lot of tribute bands out there making a lot of money. 
we, yep. he could, you know, do this. We're the real guys that did it. So we got Dave Clark to do the uh, the, the piano part. And, uh, you know, we got the other guys in the band, Malcolm, Dennis, and, and Doug. And we, we started to travel the country. And I started to fall in love with the songs again. Because all I could do was remember the good times we had recording them, the great times we had on the road. The only sure. thing that was missing was mm-hmm. my friendship with Billy. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, laying in bed one night after getting a knee operation, thinking my life is over, I thought, you know what? People are dying all around us. Yeah. We're losing friends all the time. I, I, we, we need to end this, this piano uh, uh, drum feud. Yep. And, I, and mm-hmm. I wrote him an email. You know, I sent him an email. And he responded. He goes, yeah, I was a little disappointed at the way it ended, too. So, you know, um, that, that's how we got back together again. Wow. That's amazing. And I feel like when things are, you know, are at that level, when, you know, the corporation, so to speak, is so big, the chances of misunderstandings and miscommunications are just huge at that point. Well, that, that's what it was. It was, uh, you know, there, there's so many people around, Billy. You know, the rest of the band, there's the road crew, there's the management, there's sure. so many people, and he trusts everybody to do and to that's working for him. So yeah. if one person that he trusts says something to him that isn't true about me, and he never comes to me to ask me if it's true, I don't know what happened, and he doesn't know if it's true or not. Right. So the worst mistake mm-hmm. that I made was let my Sicilian temper flare up and say <laughs> screw him i'm done with him too if he's gonna like cut me off like that what i should have done was mm-hmm. gone to uh the front of his house and waited for him to come out his front door and said what's up why did, what did this happen then i could right. have said no that never happened i never did that you know mm-hmm. but i did right. yeah it's great but it's amazing that it just took that one email you know and then you guys were able to reconnect yeah one email and uh mm-hmm. you know it, it was uh, just great. We met we met for breakfast, and we just talked about... We didn't talk about anything from the past, like any bad stuff. We talked about who's still here with us and who has passed away, who is sick, uh, you know, and we were amazed that the two of us were still standing, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And we talked about our children. You know, he has two younger children. Yep. What, you know, one older. He's got Alexa, who's older, two younger children with, with a young wife. And I have three girls that are older with one daughter with uh, my new wife. Um, And, uh, you know, we have a lot in common, even though we were apart for 16 years, we were still following that same path. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. And so his reception, it it sounds like, you know, he, he must've been, you know, regretting it for years as well too, to, to, to come back to you so quickly to want to get together. Oh, Oh yeah. The email came back right away. Like, like, yeah, I'm into this. Yeah, I'm into have a meeting, you know? So it was cool. Yeah, I think he was he was going through the same thing that I was. Like, it's really a shame that this happened. Wow, that's fantastic. And I, and I tell you, it seems like the succession of the way things happen, it feels like it just, that all had to happen to lead up to the two of you reconnecting. You know, you rediscovering the music and what you loved about it. It all led up to it very naturally. Well, you know, our lives, whatever uh, somebody said happened and the, and the whole split of me and him, uh, our lives were uh, run, ran parallel. And right now, when we were sitting face to face at this breakfast table, our lives are great again, you know? I mean, I, I, I have a great marriage and, and, and another new kid. Mm-hmm. And my, my girls are close to me now, the older girls. 
he's got a, uh, he's close to Alexa. He's got a great wife and he's got these two little kids. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was there to get my gate back. And he wasn't there to say like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go on tour again. You want to come with me? No, it wasn't that at all. No expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It was like, how you doing? It's good to see you again. You know, like that, that kind of thing. That's so good to hear. Yeah, it's great to hear, too, that there wasn't uh, a lot of rehashing in the past. You guys seemed to pick up where you left off. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was like there was no time went by when, when I was sitting across from him. Except he got a little shorter, and you know, because he tried to get stunned. And, <laughs> you know, my, my knee, I couldn't bend it as much. You know? Yeah, yeah. Little physical parts have changed, but, uh, you know, the rest of it was there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of kind of weird. Kind of weird, you know. I mean, <laughs> just funny. <laughs> I, I was amazed at how I could remember all those songs in the studio and how they went down. You know, I sat down with a, with a, with a uh, pencil and paper, and, yeah. and I actually tried to put myself back sitting on the drum stool in the studio right. when those songs were recorded. Right. Yeah, that's what I was actually wondering too. Did you know? Did you go back and you know re-listen to the cataloger at all to kind of take it back there, or was it just trying to put yourself mentally back into it? Oh yeah, I I, um, I listened again. I listened again, and I realized that's the first time I, I had ever listened to it was on a, on a flight coming home from uh, uh, visiting my cousins in Sicily, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know it's like an eight to ten hour flight and. You got time. <laughs> I listen, yeah, you got a lot of time. And so I listened to everything. That was the first time I realized, wow, we were really good. That was good. I never looked at us as that was really good. I just looked at us as like, wow, we're the luckiest guys on the planet, you know, and uh, we're doing something right. But it was like <laughs> listening now, it's like, wow, that stuff was good. Like listening to Laura or, or the, the Night is Still Young or Until the Night or Easy Money. Wow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And at one point, Richard Canada sends me a live version of uh, "Worst Comes to Worst." Uh, we <laughs> we had done it at a CW Post. That was like one of the first tours that we did. "Worst Comes to Worst" in Los Angelinos, and I had to run it back. I I wrote back, "Who's who's that drama?" <laughs> <laughs> so like, wow! Now I know why we got as big as we did. Holy cow! That was good. Oh, oh yeah, even yeah, even then, but with that because that was a couple months before the stranger, and it was already, you know, Phil Ramone got it right, <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah, Phil Ramone figured it out when he said, you know, I want you guys to be the rock and roll animals you are on stage when you come into the studio, you know. So he got it. He definitely got it. And thank goodness. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would go back to the albums. Because I, I needed to, to, to know uh, the credits. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then I would listen to like a song that I, I didn't really remember. And as soon as I listened to it, then it, it all came back again. You know, like yeah. uh, Chris, Christy Lee or something like that. You know, um, and some of the songs were recorded really fast. Like uh, the, the song 52nd Street. Mm-hmm. You know, when I listened uh, to it again, it, it's... It's a really great sloppy track. And it made me remember that. I think we just did it in one take. Billy said, I got this idea. And he started to play the, the thing. And uh-huh. uh, it was one take. I, mm-hmm. I can tell the way I'm playing the drums. Like, I'm really not sure where we're going. You're just kind of feeling your way through it as, as you're playing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
So that way, it was fun to do that. It was very interesting to do that. Was that towards the end of, of writing the book or towards the beginning? Yeah, that was towards the end because there was mm-hmm. some like uh, unfinished un, uh, uh, sections there. <laughs> That's why, like, um, uh, there's one song, Oh, Surprises. Uh, uh, I wrote, oh, yeah. No surprise. No, no surprises. Surprise <laughs> yeah, because I, I really don't remember that one. <laughs> it went by so fast. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. You know. Well, and the Nylon Curtain, that was a record that took a long time because didn't Billy have his motorcycle accident while you're in the middle of doing the record? Yeah, right in the middle of the record. He, he had that motorcycle accident. That took a year to finish. Wow. Where an innocent yeah. man took uh, maybe six weeks to five weeks to do the basic tracks. You know, that's unheard of now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, as a matter of fact, Billy walked up to me and said, uh, and thought, this is going to be a bomb. It was so much fun to make. This is going to be a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing with an innocent man, how I, you know, I was listening to it not long ago and just how unbelievably, a, a, you know, a record so rooted in the fifties and sixties yeah. was so popular in the mid eighties. Well, everybody said it was like a breath of fresh air. I, I don't remember what it was out at the time, but yeah. you know, everyone is like, wow, this is really, you make a feel good record, you yeah. know? So, um, yeah, uh, girls really liked it, you know, a lot of love songs on it, because that's when he met Christy. But I remember um, Jimmy Iovine, mm-hmm. when I was, on the, I was on the plane because we were on the Stevie Nicks tour, and uh, mm-hmm. he, he listened to it. I, I played it for him in the headphones before it came out, and he said, that's really great, but I want to produce the record when they break up. <laughs> <laughs> right and, and you know it's funny it's like you can see like on stormfront there was a hint uh, uh in, something's um, coming uh in um what's it called um state of grace state of grace yeah all oh, right yeah there's a big hint that billy and christy are about to fall apart you know mm-hmm. so yeah and that's why i think he stopped writing songs he was stopped he didn't want to uh, uh expose his life anymore you know it was just too much for him yeah that could be a, de- a delicate thing you know different songwriters have different schools and ways they do it i've got a friend who's a songwriter in nashville and he's one of those guys who's like yep today i'm writing three songs with two different people with billy it's you know even the songs that aren't personal are very personal and so i i always got the feeling that it was like that process was always such a struggle yeah well you know uh watching him write leningrad it, he nailed it it was exactly how he felt going to russia you know uh it wasn't about like uh how cruel it was about this guy victor that he had met what he went through in life and billy what he went through in life and how we were enemies for the longest time until we met face to face there yeah. we were you know yeah. and we realized wow it's nothing like we thought it was you know you grew up thinking that Russia is the enemy and no, it's the governments that hate each other. <laughs> you know, these people are great. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's like that with everybody. <laughs> and I tell you, when I was going through the, uh, we were talking earlier, I was going through, I call it the Winter Park era of the book. Some of those moments, it was pretty surreal because I'm like, oh yeah, I remember the week that went down and it was so strange to kind of relive that in my mind as well. Yeah. Well, you see, it's, it's like, you, you know the Winter Park thing, so we can talk about this, that, which is not in the book. Like, the waitress that was the young girl that was always around me, you know, mm-hmm. um, that everybody thought, you know, by the time I left there, everybody thought that I had a four-year-old kid with her. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. It was so strange. I actually had to get out of there. 
it was, yeah. it was so like strange being there after everything went down because people really took sides. Like, whoa. It was really strange. Yeah. Yeah. That was weird. That was really weird. You know, um, I had to get out of there. <laughs> I think you and I left around the same time. I went up to Atlanta when you ended up back in New York. Yeah, we did. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I missed some of the guys there, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Cause I just found uh, like 10 funk club albums that aren't even open yet. Uh, CDs. And uh, I thought, wow, that was a really cool record. I had listened to it, uh, not too long ago. I mm-hmm. played it really loud again on the stereo. And, uh, it really was a good record, and I, I miss Tommy Calton. I talk to him sometimes on 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 uh, such a sweet guy. And, yeah. Oh God, what a gem! I hear from Mike Franklin all the time. He oh, wants okay. to play on on albums, but it's like Mike, I'm working. I'm all over the place. You know, he wanted me to play on that that uh, John Anderson record, but I just couldn't get down there. Oh yeah, I mean, you're. I feel like you've been busier than ever between the Lords and obviously the book now, and you know what you're doing with the Slim Kings, and it's. Yeah. I mean. It's it's me and you know hello you're raising a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. You know, it's funny. Uh, me and my wife talking, and, and it's like if I was still with Billy, would would we have made it? I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. because of the of what happened, maybe that made us stronger because we you know we we are. I didn't. I'm not traveling like I, we used to with Billy. You know, be gone that, for a long time. That's true. And you guys were able to build the foundation without you being gone all year. Right. Right, so it's a big difference there. And now having the the, the young daughter, I I see what I missed with the other girls, like sure. Victoria and Marielle and, and Devin. You know, I missed a lot. Ooh, unbelievable. Yeah, and you know that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize, especially when it's you're playing with someone on this caliber who's got these month long international tours. When they say go, you go. That's right. Time to leave. Let's go. Boom. <laughs> We're out of here. How long are we gone for? Well, we're going to play in just Sydney, Australia. We're doing a tour of Australia, and we're going to be in Sydney for two and a half weeks. Right. So that's, oh, okay, that's just the beginning, and and there's like five more cities we're playing after that. You know, it's like insane. Really far. There was no cell phones then. No, nothing. You couldn't FaceTime. No, it's easier now to have some a little closer connection, for sure. Right, but it's still that absence, absence yeah. that, that, is, uh, that, that can drive you to drink. <laughs> And I think people misunderstand what life is like 90% of the time on the road. They think it's a lot more exciting than it is. Oh, they think it's American Idol all the way, you know. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's not. And that's what I liked what I did with the book is like I show you how I got from, uh, you know, being a young kid that wanted to do it to actually doing it. It's not, I didn't go on Star Search or, or American Idol and play and everybody said, you win. You win. Okay, now you're under our wing, and we're going to mold you with it. No, this is, this is a hard road to go down, you know? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's such a shame, and, and I, I feel, because, I mean, it's so, it's so different than it was even 10 years ago because, you know, the whole path of even selling records is gone. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. You know, uh, people just want to download everything for free, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's a lost art, you know, holding a record, record album in your hands. It's just nobody, you can't tell a young person what that was like to do that. You know, to go to the store, you got to go to the store, first of all, to get the record. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, 
And then you come home, you crack the, the cellophane that's on the outside, and you put it on. And while you put it on, you're reading all these credits and, and all yeah. this stuff, you know. Now yeah. it's like they download it. They got 5,000 songs on their iPhone. It's like, right. what are you going to listen to 5,000 songs? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And, I, you know, you mentioned I still remember the experience with specifically with Glass Houses. I'm like... So this is what these guys look like. Okay, what's their story? You know, right, right, right. And Glass Houses yeah. was a classic. Cause the question I get all the time is, why did you put the watch around your ankle? Well, we were so boring in this in the uh, photo <laughs> uh, the photographer's studio. They said, you guys are the most boring guys I've ever photographed. Do something different. Okay, I put the watch around my ankle. I took my glasses off. You know, <laughs> and then when Billy saw the picture, he's like. It's a little stiff, man. And then he took the grease pencil that you write on the board with. Oh, yeah. And he wrote uh -huh. all our names in the grease pencil, you know? At least it made it look good. There was a little yellow in there now. That was enough of a touch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Weird, weird the way things happen. You know, it's interesting you talk about the, the experience of, of, like, you know, going and cracking open the record. And I, I feel like over the last couple of weeks, that's what it's been like for, like, a bunch of us because we all ordered this book and we were all, you know, like, waiting for it to come in. And, uh, you know, everybody's posting it online as they're getting it. Because it was like the last thing, you know, we couldn't download the book. We had to wait for it to, for the physical copies to come in. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. You, uh, so were you following those when, when everybody started uh, put, posting the pictures? Oh, yeah. I, 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 when somebody says they got the book, I try to write, like, at least enjoy underneath it, you know, so they know I see that they got the book. Yeah. You know, and, and Hudson Music yeah. Hudson Music is following it all the time because, you know, sometimes, uh, like, they have... Uh, extra books put to the side because sometimes like uh, it might rain and the book gets soaked, you know, oh, uh, sure. so they another one. So they have to follow almost every, everybody's uh, thing. There was one, uh, one guy wrote and said, I, I thought these books were going to be autographed. You know, I opened my book up and there's no autograph in here. I turn one more page. One more. <laughs> <laughs> all these interviews um i know even just us scheduling you know scheduling this and you know again we're grateful you took the time but uh yeah from what we could tell you've been amazingly busy the last couple of weeks let me tell you something it's a good thing i did something similar with hired gun when when hired gun came out you know they uh -huh. they set up like um uh, the other day there was 20 interviews in a row they get this one guy who is national uh radio and he gets on the phone with me, and then he calls every um, uh, radio station. They get uh -huh. eight to ten minutes, you know. Yeah. Uh, and mm -hmm. he he tells me if they start to say things that make you uncomfortable, I just say a magic word and I'll push the button and they'll be gone. <laughs> you know. <it's> like, <laughs> but the, but the the twenty interviews happen from eight thirty till eleven thirty. And it's like, bam, wow. bam, bam, wow. one right after another. So you get to the point where it's like when you're up to like number 10 or something like that, you're thinking, you're saying something and you're thinking, did I just tell him that? Or was that the interview before that I said that? You know? Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, it blends together, so I'm sure. Confusing. Yeah. You know? It's crazy. But this is good. You wanted to do it at night and that, uh, you know. Anna is putting the baby to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think the timing worked out great for everyone because you know Jack's Jackson Philly, he's on the East Coast, and you know I'm out in Washington now, so we're we're all kind of spread out. Oh, 
out uh, out uh, the west coast you are yeah i'm uh i'm about an hour north of portland so i was when you guys were in bremerton what a couple of years back that was you know only a couple hours from me right bremerton Woo. That was cool. That was really cool. For a one-off show, I mean, that was it was great to see, you know, the crowd for just a, you know, essentially a one-off. Yeah. And we we had played in uh, Arizona uh, like right before that and flew up there. Yeah. Yeah, the the, the routing will get better, I hope. <laughs> Well, yeah, it'd be, you know, it'd be great to see if you guys can make it, you know, do some more West Coast, you know, in time. But I, it makes sense why the Northeast and Florida are our go-tos so far. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we were with Billy, we used to do what we, they used to call the uh, the dartboard tour. You know, you'd, you'd be one night in Chicago and then the next day you're in Phoenix and then you're you're back in, in Milwaukee. And then it's like, oh, who booked this? <laughs> we're all over the place. All over the place. I, I remember seeing you, I think it was the River of Dreams tour in Detroit, but I think it was two shows I saw, but they were like three months apart. Same venue. Yeah, that happens when they, uh, you know, it sells out so fast, they want to book another night, but uh, the hockey team is playing and uh, right. they're playing basketball and it's like uh, other shows are booked there and the only time they can book it is like three months down the road, you know? <laughs> right. So you you could be doing your West Coast tour, and then all of a sudden there's this Detroit stuck in the middle. Yeah, and then you got to fly out to do a TV thing, and you know you guys were all over the place. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. But like in the book, I, I say I wouldn't change a thing, except maybe I'd be in the Beatles instead of playing with Billy Joel. <laughs> right, <laughs> that would be a good swap. I, I I'd be happy with that yeah, too. Right. I'd say <laughs> that was that would have been nice. That would have been nice. So how long have you guys been doing this? We launched uh, in February. I had been kind of tossing around the thought of doing a Billy podcast for about a year now. And I met Jack online and we had a just mm -hmm. a nice conversation like this. And probably 10 days later, we were recording. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. A lot of people, because of the uh, uh, pandemic, have uh, started these uh, webcasts. I know that uh, I did one with Carmine Apiece. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Dave, uh, his last time he came with a U, I can never say it, but played with the Hooters, the drummer for the Hooters. He's got one. Oh, in the pocket. Yeah, in the pocket. Right, right. Yeah. Which is really, really cool. I mean, you know, um, drummer talking to drummer. I did the modern drummer one yesterday. Oh, I saw Bernard pop in. <laughs> oh, that was so cool. That was so great. Was so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You don't play music in between. You just. Right. Yeah. Um, um, each episode is kind of thematic. So we'll, you know, one episode we'll talk about either an out, maybe like an album. And then the next one we'll talk about a tour and then maybe we'll dig into just one year. Okay, cool. Sounds cool. And we, you know, we felt too, that there's interesting things to dive into with these songs and tours and stuff like that, that really haven't been talked about really much until your book. Yeah. I think this has uh, answered a couple of questions we've had, like along the way we've, we've found the answers over the last week. Oh, in the book. Yeah. Yeah to tell all that tells nothing <laughs> <laughs> i was curious those little my drum essays that were kind of dotted throughout i really like those at what point did you kind of come up with those were those things you had thought about for a while or did you just kind of sit down and put that all together one day no that was one full chapter that and uh the, the guy who is uh from hudson music uh joe bergamini who's a mm -hmm. great drummer uh -huh. in his own right um was editing it, and he goes, you know, that's the longest chapter in the book, uh, my drums. He goes, uh -huh. let's do this, not to bore people. <laughs> we'll we'll take 
pieces and put them after every other chapter. And he was right. It's like there's this great stuff, you know, about growing up with Super and all this kind of stuff and then Mitch Ryder. And then after each one, it's like, this is where my drum had me here. This is where what yeah. I think of the drums, you, you know. Yeah. So it's pretty cool the way, we, way it was put together. You know, that was the, the thing that I couldn't do. I couldn't, I couldn't lay it out. Yeah, it sounds like that was the biggest help was having someone kind of connect those dots. Yeah, that and and uh, I have a life coach and and she read the book before anything and and she was like, you know, you can enhance this or you shouldn't say this because because she was like, I don't want to see anybody if you go do a, a book tour, I don't want to have anybody outside protesting that you said something <laughs> that's wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like certain people wanted to be called this. And not that, you know, uh, I wasn't aware of that. You talk about how this was kind of written slowly over the last 15 or so years. Do you feel that as you began to start letting the anger go, did you revisit some of it and maybe kind of round out the edges a little bit and just kind of look at it differently? Oh, yeah, yeah. The part, uh, especially about the the crashing, crash and burn, whatever, I come crashing down, the part about Mary. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was my my wife. Now read that, and she goes, "You can, you can't do this. This is not you anymore." You know, right? Because it was like I was like really angry. You know, in the beginning, I was smashing gold albums against the corner of a coffee table. You know? <laughs> yeah, just so angry with everything going around around you. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm not that person anymore. I'm really like uh, happy. You know, and then reading that was like, oh, that's ugly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad that didn't come out. <laughs> sure, that makes sense. And I feel like you were able to, the more you got removed, you were able to see how Billy may have seen things, but it almost feels like same thing with Mary, how she may have seen the situation as well. Yeah. Yeah. When I was thinking about doing your podcast here, I, I was thinking like, wow, I wonder how Michael saw me when we did play the Blockfin, you know, like, uh, man, I can't even remember that waitress's name. Uh, which she would just walk up at the end when the band was done, boom, yep. with all those glasses of wine on the tray. Here you like, go. With it, like you could set a timer to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you were standing there knowing that, like, okay, he's probably going to do the same thing he does all the time. He's going to say, could you put my clothes in the car? You know, <laughs> and then, <laughs> then we all go back to his house because his wife is up in Michigan. And Yeah, it was... It was such a, it was a crazy time. Get the, that that Blackfin scene was was something. It was very different than when you were doing a festival or a club gig. Something about that particular venue. Yeah, because you, you had Doug in the fun club trying to pass a stone and getting pissed at Larry and pinning him against the wall by the neck. You know, I've never seen something like that. And again, that's one probably one of my strongest memories about those shows was. <laughs> oh. Fun. Unbelievable. That was unbelievable. What a shocker that was. So Jack, yeah. So Jack, you don't know this story, but what happened is, uh, you know how, you know, with the Russian thing, it's like the subtext of you, you could tell tensions were building and yeah. Billy was getting frustrated. Well, something <laughs> similar, but except instead of trashing a, pia- a keyboard, it was another guy in the band. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Grabbed him by the neck. Put him. What happened was Doug was singing this, one of the songs and, and Larry kept yelling, it doesn't go like that. It doesn't go like that. <laughs> and meanwhile, Doug is trying to pass a stone. So he, like, the song is over. Boom. Right across the stage. Now, Doug, he has Larry up against the wall off his feet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy. In two seconds. Two seconds. And this is, this is on stage. Downbeat of the song at the end. Yeah. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> that was so great. He charges, yeah, right across, because they were on opposite side, sides of the stage. And it was more of a disbelief. Is like, is this really happening right now? <laughs> right, right. That was so great. That was so great. We survived. We did. We did and had some had some stories to tell about it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun record, though. I, you know, I was trying to remember. Do you do you recall what how the transition happened between the original Funk Club lineup and then when Kyle came into the fold and it shifted for a bit? Yeah. You, well, um, uh, Doug said he had a friend that sang. You know, Doug didn't want to sing every song. I didn't sing. Larry didn't sing. Tommy didn't sing for sure. Right. Yeah. The the horns could only come in when they were around because they were working all the time. Yeah. And um and uh so Doug thought he'd bring in Kyle. Uh what band did Kyle play with, remember? Um Oh the producers. The producers, right. Yep. Right. We used Kyle a couple of times in Big People after uh, Ben passed away. Oh sure, yeah, because he's a bass player too. Yeah. Yeah, which uh w- it was cool. I see him now on Facebook. Uh Kyle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He lives out somewhere by you or something out there out west. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The Billy tours were kind of getting less and less. It was just an it was a, a lot of uncertainty going on then. Yeah, we were only going out 10 weeks without 10 weeks a year, you know, yep. and that was it. Yeah. You know, so there was a lot of time to hang out, you know, in, in that on Park Avenue where that uh there were three bars there. They called it the Bermuda Triangle. You know, when you get caught <laughs> there, it's like, whoa. You know, and I can remember going there with, you know, Bob Langford. And, mm-hmm. and whoa, where am I? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but then, yeah, but, you know, that's what it's about. I mean, having that uh, problem, you know, um, substance abuse and, and yeah. realizing it and getting out of it, you know, luckily. Yeah, that's that's very fortunate. There was a lot that didn't last as a result of it, but you're still with us. You're alive and you're thriving now. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, you know that road. It went down that road. Realized yep. not a good one. Not a good one. You know, it seems we we all go down a dark road at one time in our life, mm-hmm. and then realize, whoa, I better back out of this. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's too late for some people, though. Yeah, that's true. You know, whether, you know, the situation with Doug and, but you also see guys who are still technically around who are just, you know, they're never going to climb out of it. No, never. They get caught in that, that trap and there they are. So, so everybody buy the book. Yeah, tell everyone <laughs> where they can get it. They can get it at uh, HudsonMusic.com. And, you know, I signed 1,500 of them and there was such a demand uh, for more. That I went up yesterday and signed 500 more. And that I think oh, more than half of them are gone already. <laughs> so if you want one that that I signed, you, you better hurry up and go to HudsonMusic.com and get one. Wow. Uh, and you can get it get it at Amazon. And I think today is the day it's been released, and um, it should probably be in the stores like really soon. And so everyone, if you happen to miss out on a signed copy, but do still buy it, you know, bring it to a Lord's show or a Slim King show and come say hi to them, right? Yeah. We're doing a show July 22nd uh, in um, Deer Park in a parking lot. A Lord's show? Yeah. They set it up now where you, you go in your car and, and you, you can put on the radio or radio uh, station broadcast it. You see us playing live and you can listen to it over the radio. But the restrictions are we're the only ones that are going to be backstage, you know, mm-hmm. probably wearing masks. Yeah. And uh, 
and then there's no meet and greet for a little while. Sure. So, uh, I mean, if somebody has a book and they can get it to Andy and Andy could bring it back, I'll gladly sign it, you know? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I tell you, that's that's an interesting point. I, I wouldn't mind asking you really quick is of any industry, the touring industry has taken probably one of the biggest jolts because of all of this, you know? Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, you know, where where do you see that going? Well, everybody's trying new things. A friend of mine that lives in the building here, she went out to Nashville and with major country artists that did a concert in a big place, but there was no audience. And they, they filmed it. It was on TV. Oh, wow. That that will happen with the really big acts. Mm-hmm. Play with, with no audience, but you'll be able to see it on TV. Or maybe pay-per-view. You know the way you did the boxing matches? Yep. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Um, for us, with Lords, you know, we were selling out a thousand seated uh, theaters. They'll do big parking lot and drive-in shows oh, where okay. people uh, are doing are practicing uh, the, the distance thing, but in their cars. Right. You know, they'll yeah. sit on top of the car or whatever they'll do. Yeah. But you know, it'll be uh, the social distancing where they're not elbow to elbow. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I had heard at one point that that theaters. Instead of doing one show to a packed house, you do two shows, uh, but to like half a house, half so the space between people. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But people want music. People want live music. So I, it's going to come back, but it's going to be a slow crawl. Yeah, I think you're right, and and I I I've found that a lot of people during this time have been really starting to rediscover music again in a different way, in a way that we used to years ago. I think with people having some more time on their hands and right. It's that part has been great. Yeah. And uh, it was the perfect time for a book to come out. You know, oh, are you what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to read. <laughs> you're going to read. You're, if you go to the beach, you're going to you're going to social distance from somebody and you're going to read. But that's nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you, it's a very smooth read. I hear you in it for sure. And so it reads like you, but it's it's a nice, smooth read all around. Oh, cool. I'm glad you like it. Really yeah. glad you liked it. Well, it's cool. It's been fun. I'm going to go eat some dinner now. Liberty, I can't thank you enough. It's been a joy to connect with you again. I know you and I go back 20 years now, so it's it's always good to get to catch up with you. All right, my friend. I'll talk to you again. All right. We'll talk to you soon, Lib. Take care. Take care. Take bye. Care. And so that was our conversation with Liberty. Uh, Liberty, we, again, we can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule over these past two weeks to talk with us. It's especially great for us because there's so many of these episodes we put together and we come up with so many questions that come up, you know, as we do our research. And this time around, we got to read this book and come up with these questions. And with a, within a few days of reading it, we get to ask the man himself. So that was a, a great honor. Yeah, it was really special. You know, this book is fresh in our mind. So while we're still digesting it, it's been great to get to chat with you and pick your brain a little bit about the book and learning some more along the way. Thank you to Andy Gilmartin for uh, coordinating the interview, the schedule. I know Liberty's been so busy in the middle of promoting this book. So to be able to carve out a half hour or so to uh, chat with us really meant a lot and your support of the podcast means a lot to us as well yeah and uh for those of you listening now it's your turn we know a whole bunch of you's got this book we know a whole bunch of you's read it already we want to know what you thought what were your favorite parts what uh what weren't you expecting what surprised you tell us about the day it came in we want your critiques as well (laughs) yeah absolutely we'd love to hear your impressions uh if you don't have the book yet you can still get it online you can order it either at amazon.com or directly from the publisher and that's hudsonmusic.com so those are going to be the best two places to order the book it's a fantastic 
fantastic read, super engaging and interesting, and it'll go by super quick. So we can't recommend it enough. Please write in, let us know what your thoughts are on the book. You can get to us at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you search Glass Houses Billy Joel Podcast, you'll find us on all of those spots. And uh, you can find us on our website at glasshousespod.com as well. And while you're on your uh, podcast website of choice, please remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. It goes a long way for us. Uh, Not only makes us feel good about the time and effort that we already gladly put into this, but it helps us get found by more people. The better ratings you have, the more yours rises to the top. And uh, I'm sure you know other Billy Joel fans that would love to hear it as much as you. And you can help us out just by giving us a great review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. That would mean a lot to us. So thanks in advance for that. Uh, So this has been a fantastic episode and thanks everyone for tuning in. Again, it was so great to chat with Liberty DeVito. Just such a great guy and what an incredible story. Jack and I are just both thrilled that he and Billy have reconciled and have uh, picked up their friendship once again. That's probably my favorite part about all of this. That's it for us. Enjoy the book and enjoy the photo at the end if you haven't seen it already. Absolutely. You'll love it. So we will see you next time for another episode of Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. 